At this time, would you turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 8? 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. One of our hosts will provide a Bible, provide a Bible for you. And you can find 1 Samuel 8 on page 230 in most of those Bibles, um, but page 230. But in light of what we even what I just read, in light of our current series, we've talked a lot about leadership. And desperate times can, can uh, compel us to desire a leader who will help us in this. But in this series, we've seen lots about leadership. We've seen corrupt and abusive leaders who take advantage of people. We've witnessed weak and passive leaders who are unwilling to do what is right. We've also seen a righteous leader who calls the people back to faith, calls them to repentance and a right relationship with the Lord. In last week's sermon, part of that final point was uh, saying that we need a lasting leader. We need someone who doesn't just last for term or even a generation, but someone who is eternal. And that is the kind of leader that we need. But here, Samuel's not an eternal leader. He's on his way out. The nation is in transition, and the transition of leadership opens up the fragileness of the nation. There's transition, leadership transitions can be difficult and they open up people to be very vulnerable in organizations or nations or churches to be vulnerable. It can reveal weaknesses in either of those spheres. And it can also, a leadership transi- transition can also reveal our own idolatry of leadership. An idolatry of leadership. Let me ask, is it possible for leadership or leaders to be an idol. I think so. Leadership can be an idol, I think, in, in ways where we seek to our ultimate security, meaning, or strength in a position or in a particular person. And when we seek our security, meaning, or strength in a particular position or person, then we tend to give those leaders our allegiance or ultimate trust which can look a lot like worship. See, we expect a leader to provide for us, to give us security, to make us prosper. And the nation of Israel here is tempted to those same things. They're in a very precarious situation because of lack of good leadership could open them up to military challenges. Remember, under Samuel's leadership, the country, the nation had been safe. They, had, they were safe from all enemies around them. They had endured several, maybe 30 years or more of prosperity and peace. But as Samuel aged and as he was about to transition, the people would be naturally asking the question, who will lead us? How can we continue with this kind of security? So they ask for a leader. They seek a leader. And their error, though, was not in seeking a leader. It wasn't necessarily about their request of leadership. Their error was in their motivation. Because in seeking a leader, they were placing their ultimate security, hope, and meaning, and giving that leader their their allegiance and trust. And therefore, they were rejecting God as their king. They wanted a leader so they could be like the nation's, They wanted a leader who would fight their battles, and therefore they were rejecting God as their king. Go ahead and stand, if you would, as I read from 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm going to read the entire chapter. It'll take a few moments. But as we, a couple things. One, we're commanded in Scripture to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. And there's a a particular benefit as we hear the word read to pick up on what the Lord has for us. 1 Samuel 8, verse 1. 
When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they, are, they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly, solemnly warn them to show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the, to, of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war in the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves." And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is God's word. You may be seated. So leadership had become an idol to the people. And when leadership becomes an idol, remember when they seek their security, when they seek their trust, when they seek their, give their ultimate authority to a leader, they're committing idolatry. And when leadership becomes an idol, they tend to, there are consequences for that. And these are major mistakes, but they're more than just mistakes. They're rejecting God. They are rejecting the Lord. So in this text, I think we see four consequences of when leadership becomes an idol. Now, a couple of caveats before we get into that. First, when, we say, when we're talking about leadership being an idol, this does not mean that leadership is not important. It, in fact, it's very important. Leadership and, and authority are very important. The scripture has, it commands us to have good and wise and right leaders. Leadership is important. The second caveat is that this does not also mean that leadership or authority is by nature bad. Leadership and authority can be good things. 
These are important things. The response to bad authority is good authority. So just because leadership can be an idol does not mean that it's not good and does not mean that it's not helpful. However, there are consequences to when leadership becomes an idol. Four consequences. When leadership becomes an idol, number one, we will find leaders who pervert justice. We will find leaders who pervert justice. Verse 1 of chapter 8, when Samuel became old, therefore he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Verse 3, key one here. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. When leadership becomes an idol, we will make leaders or find leaders who pervert justice or will have compromised character. See, in the midst of this leadership transition, as Samuel is old, he's working hard to provide his own successor. Okay, so leadership transitions are hard. If you just Google leadership transitions, you'll find all kinds of blog posts or articles that are giving recommendations or they're consulting various institutions, companies, churches, or whatever about how to make a leadership transition go well. You'll see all kinds of, uh, of different advice um, but leadership transitions can be challenging. So, um, you know, do we take an internal candidate? Do we have external people who are coming in? There's all kinds of suggestions that go on. Well, Samuel was trying to be that leader who established another leader while he was still alive to help be a bridge of leadership. He was transitioning to younger leadership. However, Samuel learned an important lesson, and we learned an important lesson here today as well. Godly leadership is not hereditary. Godly leadership is not hereditary. You will remember that the nation had peace from the Philistines and the Amorites under Samuel's leadership. So maybe Samuel thought, well, my own sons will be able to provide that there as well. Samuel brought the people back to repentance. He had helped them trust in the Lord. You know, these sons that he puts as judges in, in his place are worthless, like similar sons we saw earlier. In verse 3, they did not walk according to the ways of Samuel. They turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. This is exactly like the sons of Eli earlier. Now, Samuel's not rebuked quite like Eli was, but still, Samuel was either not as good of a father as we would have thought, or... He was too eager to have a leader in his place, and therefore he compromised the character of his sons for the sake of a leader. Maybe he was blinded by his own familial relationship with his sons to, not, to, to, to miss their misguided character. In any case, Samuel allowed them to be rulers over the people, and they perverted justice, and they took bribes from the people. Uh, the, the, the two sons have significant names, although they did not quite live up to them. Joel means Yahweh is God. Abijah means my father is Yahweh. Ironically, they're living the exact opposite. They're living without trust in God, and they're living as if their father, their God, is not Yahweh. In any case, godly leadership is not hereditary. See, when, when Samuel put them in charge maybe out of a desire to have a leader, he put people in there who were not ready, who did not have the right character, and therefore they took for themselves, they took bribes and perverted 
justice. You don't have to be a Christian to be sickened by corrupt authorities. In a corrupt system, there's no one to trust. But sometimes we're willing to compromise the character of a leader because, well, we need a leader. So just take anybody that's available. I think compromising character is a bad idea for any leadership position because you're not just entrusting a set of ideas or a platform to a position. You're entrusting a person to inhabit a position, one who needs to think, to act, to lead. So compromising character is a bad idea anywhere in government or in the workplace, but it's especially a bad idea in local churches. See, there's plenty of application in broader spheres um, that we might be in, but we as God's people need to apply this to our own local church today. See, the qualifications for elders and deacons and deaconesses are primarily about character. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 outline the character attributes of church leaders. Listen to just the first few verses of Titus 1, starting in verse 7. Paul writes, For an overseer, that is a pastor elder, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. See, we shouldn't be too surprised when the world compromises character for the sake of a gifted leader. But brothers and sisters, may it never be so in the church of Jesus Christ. We can never compromise character for the sake of giftedness. Giftedness will always run out. It will always run its course. Character is the most important. And what should be true of all of God's people, those attributes described there, must be true of church leaders. Giftedness will wear out, but godliness will last. We must never compromise the character of our leaders. Again, I think that has broader implications for lots of places in society, but in particular, it has applications for us as local churches. But Samuel's misjudgment of his sons leads the peop- led him to make a terrible decision in giving them that kind of position. And we too have a typical or similar kind of leadership idolatry. So the people, though, reject these leaders and they're searching for a leader, but, but maybe Samuel was committing leadership idolatry, but so were the people and their search for a leader caused them to reject the Lord. Our second consequence, when leadership becomes an idol, we will place our hope in a leader and reject the Lord. When leadership becomes an idol, we will place our hope in a leader and reject the Lord. The elders went to uh, Samuel's house in Ramah to be able to tell him, this isn't working out. Your sons are not so good. They don't walk according, according to your ways. But then the end of verse four, they say this, now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. A key thing, a key text, key verse. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and he, and he was dis- disappointed. He prayed to the Lord or displeased him when they said, give us a king. And God said, obey them, in verse 7, the voice of the people and all that they say, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. But when the people come to Samuel and they say, give us a king, they are rejecting God 
as their king. Now, we need to ask though a little bit, what makes this verse so important? What makes this verse so critical? What is the big deal anyways about having a king? In fact, there are provisions for a king in the law. In Deuteronomy 17, this is an important thing. Write down Deuteronomy 17 in your notes. Go back and read the whole thing later. We'll read portions of it now. But there were provisions for a king in the law. Deuteronomy 17 verse 14 says this, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. So the problem was not necessarily their request for a king. The problem was their underlying motivation. They wanted to be like the other nations around them. One theologian in discussing this text, he says, the people come with a request and tag on a Bible verse to it to try to spiritualize a bad motivation, a sinful request. They wanted to be like the nations around them and they were saying, hey, you you provided this in Deuteronomy 17. Yeah, we want to be like this. But the context, though, seems to indicate that they're searching for more than just a king. They want conformity to the nations that are around them. And God tells Samuel, Samuel, take hope. They're not rejecting you in this request. They're really rejecting me from being king over them. And this is a gross failure of trust in the Lord. God went on then to describe what this rejection really looked like. In verse 8, God says, According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. God says, I've seen this movie before. They're rejecting me now like they've been rejecting me all along. From the time I brought them out of Egypt, of all places, They're rejecting me again. See, throughout this book, we've seen many overtones between 1 Samuel and the book of Exodus. God bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt. And God makes an explicit connection here between Israel's rejection and their ancestors' rejection with the idolatry of the golden calf. Essentially, this is a new golden calf moment. In Israel's request of a king so that they might be like the nations, it's as if they're building the golden calf 2.0. So God told them, told Samuel to, to give it to him. Allow it. Obey the voice of the people. But in Exodus 32, with the golden calf, the people committed idolatry. And here in 1 Samuel 8, the people are committing a similar kind of idolatry. They're building their own idolatry of a leader before them so that they might follow this one and be like the nations. They're rejecting themselves too as God's people. One commentator writes this, In rejecting the Lord in favor of the idolatry of political prestige and power, Israel was also renouncing its covenant status. From the beginning of Israel's existence as a nation, her calling was to be distinct from the nations with their national life organized by the covenant at Sinai. When the elders of Israel said they wanted to be like the nations, they were saying that they were tired of being Israel. Lord, we're tired of being your people. We want to be like those guys. 
This wasn't simply about having a king to lead. That wasn't necessarily wrong. But they were trusting to this king so that they would be like, just like the other nations. They had made an idolatry of their political prestige and power. And they wanted a leader to give that to them. See, this is when we find our own temptation to leadership idolatry. This is when I talk about the difference between casting a vote and giving allegiance to people. See, to place our ultimate hope and allegiance and trust in a leader or in a position is to commit idolatry before the Lord. And you might think, well, I don't do that. I don't make my political leaders or my, anybody over me, I don't make them a, uh, an idol. Well, let me ask just a few questions. How do you handle your leader being critiqued? Is it possible even for a, a leader that you support, that you encourage, that you might vote for, is it possible to critique that person in ways they may not measure up, in moral failures, in unwise judgments? How do you manage your candidate or party losing an election? Are all of your hopes and dreams crushed? Is this the end of it all? Is there no more joy? How do you deal with a leader letting you down? See, if life is over, or if our leaders are beyond critique, then we may have a misplaced trust and we have rejected the Lord. See, if we're more identified by our political allegiances, by our attachments to leaders, then we're committing leadership idolatry in rejecting the Lord, because leaders will always overpromise and underdeliver, just like idols. The idols of your life, where you're seeking security, strength, meaning, significance, will always overpromise and underdeliver. To seek a leader over you, to provide all that you desire, all of your hopes and dreams, is to reject the Lord, and it can divide us. And we need to apply this in a similar way to the church again. See, in local churches, Paul writes to those who are divided because of their uh, leadership alliances, leadership uh, allegiances. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, I hear that there are divisions among you. Some say that you are of Apollos. Some say that you are of Paul. Some say that you are of Cephas. What Paul is trying to say there, you are not marked primarily by your leadership alliances, but upon your common commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only leader. See, if your commitments to grace are only based on who stands behind this pulpit, you will be sadly disappointed. If your commitments to the Lord are only based on some kind of leader that you expect to never let you down, then you will be disappointed. But see, commitments to Jesus. See, he's the only one who is truly sovereign. He's the only one who is truly pure. You can trust him. If we place our hope in a leader, we will reject the Lord. The third consequence for leadership idolatry is that we will find a leader who will take for themselves. 
For leader, the consequence of leadership idolatry, when we make leadership out to be an idol, we will find a leader who will take for themselves. In verses 10 through 18, we see what Samuel takes to the people to be able to say, I'm giving you this warning. You're asking for a king, and this is what he'll be like. It's almost as if God gives this as a chance for the people to say, okay, we, we take it back. We're sorry. We, we, you know, we renounce that request. You know, delete that email. Give it back. Um, you know, it's almost as if God is giving them a chance to say, my bad. But they double down. L- listen to this. Uh, six times, so four times in the original and six implied times, it, or two other times, it's implied that this leader will take. Verse 11, he will take your sons and appoint them as chariots, or to, to his chariots and to be his horsemen. He will take your daughters, verse 13, to be his perfumers and cooks and bakers. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields. Verse 15, he will take a tenth of your grain. Verse 16, he will take your male servants and female servants. Verse 17, he will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. See, when leadership becomes an idol, we will give authority. We will platform people who will view that position for themselves. They will take for their own selves and they will therefore make us his or her slaves. After, he, after this leader, he's, they're being warned, he will take, take, take. The people will cry out, God says, and I will not answer you. One commentator says that this taking, 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 They'll be put under the oppression. The word for this is slavery. And you'll cry out as if you were in Egypt again. Notice these overtones again. He's taking, they're submitting themselves, and they'll be oppressed by this king whom they chose over them. We need to go back to Deuteronomy 17. Verse 15 The requirements for this king says this. This king shall be one from among your brothers. You shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. See, the leader, the king that God had provisions for in Deuteronomy 17 sounds vastly different than the one he says is going to rule over you in 1 Samuel 8. The leader that they needed, the leader that God had provided for would be a leader who would serve the people, not take from them. He would be a leader who would not have excessive silver and gold. He wouldn't be a wealthy person. He wouldn't be trying to get rich off the backs of his people. He wouldn't have many wives like the kings of the other nations because those wives would turn his heart away from him. Are any of us familiar with your Bibles a little bit? You're thinking through other kings of Israel of where you see the very shortcomings and sins of those future kings indicated in, those, uh, in what's indicated here in 1 Samuel 8. Much wealth will turn their heart away. Many wives will turn their heart away. They will not stay faithful to the Lord. The saying goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And they're giving this king, absolute power, and he'll be absolutely corrupt. Many leaders are tempted to use their position and influence for their own selfish gain. This can be true in politics. This is true in government. This is true in business. This is true in the church. 
And many of you are managers or directors and have people who work under your leadership and authority. Now, leadership re- requires a type of uh, directiveness. Uh, it requires um, setting clear expectations. But do you ever use your position of authority, of influence, to take advantage of others? Or do you see yourself as the servant of those under your influence? See, the people of Israel were not wrong in asking for a king, but they didn't come and ask for a king like the one in Deuteronomy 17. They didn't come and say, Lord, we need a, we need a servant king. We need that king that you've already said you'll provide. We, we're ready for him. They come seeking to be conformed to the other nations. And then the final consequence of this is really where it might be the worst. They wanted to be like the other nations, but they also, in their leadership idolatry, wanted a king to do what only God could provide. Our final consequence of leadership idolatry is that we expect what only God can provide. Look at their response to Samuel's warning in verse 19. They say, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no. But there shall be a king over us, that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. See, the rejection of the king in verse 7 is crucial, but here is where it gets explained. They reject God as their king because they want to be like the other nations. They want someone to represent them like a king does, but they also want the king to fight their own battles. And this is something when leadership becomes an idol, we begin to expect a leader to provide what only God can. Because only God can fight our battles. We don't even, probably in our Bibles, don't even to flip over a page to get to 1 Samuel chapter 7. And in 1 Samuel chapter 7, where the nation is gathered together for repentance, the Philistines are coming to slaughter them. And it's God who thundered to confuse those Philistines. It was God who fought that battle. Going back to the Red Sea and the exodus out of Egypt, it's the people, the Israelites, who cross over the the parting of the Red Sea. They cross over on dry ground and they get to the other side. And this weak-willed nation watches those waves come back over and crush the Egyptian army. They should have been plenty familiar with God fighting their battles. And yet now they're asking for a human king to do what only God can do for them. Israel wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted a king who would fight their battles. And when leadership is an idol for us, we expect the same things. We need to go back to Deuteronomy 17 to finish our description. Verse 18 says this, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, and that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. See, the king that God had promised would be one that would be committed and faithful to the covenant. 
He would not be arrogant. He would stay faithful. He would not abuse the people. He would not take from them, but he would serve the people. See, brothers and sisters, we too sometimes cry out with a a leadership idolatry. Lord, give us a king who will lead over us, who will fight our battles, who will give us significance, who will give us security. And what we need to be reminded again and again and again, that all of our trust in earthly leaders is futile. It's not that leaders aren't important, but all of our trust and allegiance to earthly leaders will not get us anywhere. And when we make leadership to be an idolatry, out to be an idol, those idols will eventually crush us. They will take, take, and take, and never give. See, the leader that we need and the leader that they needed was a leader who would not take from them, but a leader who would serve. Did you notice that in Deuteronomy 17? One who would not be above his brothers, one who would not be crazy wealthy, one who would not take advantage of the people, but one who would give maybe of his own life. Instead of Jesus, that when Jesus came, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, brothers and sisters, the leader that we ultimately need is a servant king who reigns and fights for us. Jesus, the true servant king, reigns over all things. He is the one who is truly in control. And he fights for us. He fights our most significant battle. Not one of prosperity, health, and wealth, but one of sin and death. And because of what he's done on the cross and through his resurrection, he fights our battles. Therefore, we can trust him. Brothers and sisters, we need a servant king who reigns and fights for us. Regardless as to your personal struggle. Regardless as to whatever turmoil may be in our state and in our world. We trust in the servant king who reigns and fights. May we reject all other sources, reject all other idols with our hope fixed on the servant king. Let's pray. And God, we recognize that you are that king. And Jesus, you have lived and died in our place and rose again. You have served us to the uttermost. So that you don't take for yourself, but you give of yourself that we might have life. God, we pray that we would reject all sources of security, of idolatry that we think can fight our battles. Because Christ, only you can. For you are the king. You reign, you rule. And we pray that you would strengthen us with that great hope and trust. In Jesus' name, amen.